There are outlines on the table in front of you. We are in the book of Genesis, book of beginnings. We finished chapter 13 last week. As we think about in chapters 13 and 14, Abraham and Lot, or Abram and Lot, and last week we talked about their separation as Lot went his way. Abram gave him the choice which direction to go. We know Lot, uh, at least selfishly as we look at it, took the richest of the land, and so Abram went the other direction. But today we come to chapter 14, and we're going to see that um, the separation of Lot and Abram was very temporary, and we'll see what happened in today's adventure, this uh, chapter 14. So I'm glad you're here. Great to see you. Welcome one and all. So let's bow our heads, and then we'll get started on our Bible study. Father, thank you for this good day that you've given to us. We love looking forward to the day and experiencing Wednesday when we can fellowship around the table with uh, folks that we love and appreciate, uh, that we can have a good meal, and that we can study your word. And so thank you for this great privilege. I pray you'll bless us now in our continuing study of Genesis. Speak to our hearts, guide us, inform us, instruct us, challenge us. And Father, I pray that when we leave today, we'll be glad that we've come. Thank you for the good food. Strengthen us. And uh, we look forward to the Lord's Day, praying that it will be a great day here at our church and other churches represented in this room. And we just want to glorify your name. So help us and encourage us as we seek to do that this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Um, so we did finish chapter 13, and today we'll start chapter 14, which I've entitled Rescue. Uh, as we end chapter 13, Lot is living near, but outside of Sodom. We discover ominously that by the time we get to chapter 14, verse 12, Lot has moved into Sodom. And of course, that's going to have all kinds of consequences for, for Lot and his family and it's going to involve Abram, as you probably know. I think we see in what Lot did a picture of sin's effect. We get close without trying to step over the line, but sometimes we end up getting pulled in or we jump in one or the other. Kind of like, I think I said last week, did I talk about the grandkids in the pool? Yeah, you get, you know, if you. If you're at the pool with your grandkids, they're going to want you in the pool. And so if you, and you know that, so if you get too close to the edge, then you probably can guess what's going to happen. So if you don't want to get in, then just get away from the edge and stay far enough back and you'll be okay. Well, Lot chose to live outside Sodom and the next thing you know, he's inside Sodom. I think it's a picture of the effect of sin. Well, what I want to do is read verses 1 through 12, and this is going to be a challenge. Um, there's lots of unusual names, so bear with me. I, I, I assure you they will be far from perfect, but um, we'll, we'll slog through as best we can. So chapter 14, verse 1. At the time when Amraphael was king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elasser, and Kerdolaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. Whatever happened to the Smiths and the Joneses? I, I mean, <laughs> these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom. 
Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shanab, king of Hadmah, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years they had been subject to Kedor Leomer, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So I, I guess they put up with it as long as they thought they could put up with it and they were rebelled. In the 14th year, Kedur Lamir and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites and the Ashtaroth, Karnim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shaveh, Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran from near the desert. Then they turned back and went to in Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazion Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedor Lamir, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, then they went away. They also, here's where Abram comes in, they also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So we'll stop there, mercifully ending the list of names. <laughs> Although we have to touch on a couple of them later on. All right, there is a, here in these 12 verses, a conflict between kings. Sodom is part of a pentopolis, which simply means five cities, each having their own king. So there are five of them, each have a king, probably small kings in the sense of the people they led. It wouldn't have been in terms of millions, it would have been small numbers. Nevertheless, kings with their own cities, Pentopolis, it's located at the southern end of the Dead Sea. So kind of picture that Israel headwaters up in the mountains, comes down, the Jordan River comes down, flows through the Sea of Galilee, coming out the Sea of Galilee, continues to flow down, gets to the Dead Sea, and you know the water does not flow out of the Dead Sea. So for 12 years, these uh, five kingdoms, these five cities, these five kings have been paying tribute to a coalition of four kings from the east. So now we read that the five Dead Sea kings rebel against the four kings of the east. We have a little war on our hands. The four eastern kings, so that you can get a picture of this geographically, and I think you'll understand a little better the overwhelming odds faced by the five kings. The four eastern kings, Kedur Lamir, from Elam, would be modern-day Iran. Pretty big, pretty big territory. Amraphel in Shinar is modern-day Iraq. Arioch, king of the Hurrians, or from the 
land of the Hurrians, modern-day Turkey, and title of the Hittites, also modern-day Turkey. So if you're looking at it, and the only way we know how to do geography, what it is today, then you've got Iran, Iraq, and Turkey aligned against the five kings from the south of the Dead Sea. Now, geographically, you get a pretty quick picture that the five are outnumbered by the four. The five are outnumbered by the four territorially and no doubt population-wise, which then would mean also in terms of their army and its armies and their strength. So the four kings moved to put down the rebellion, and they accomplished their objective with great force. And it would appear that they didn't have a whole lot of difficulty in doing it. Uh, their, their objective was accomplished. Uh, some of the defeated suffered horrific deaths in tar pits around the Dead Sea. I, I, I have a hard time imagining what that would be like and don't want to know personally, but if you can imagine uh, being swallowed up in a tar pit and fighting for your life, it just would be awful. Uh, in verse 11, it simply talks about the spoils of war, which include a lot and all that he had, including his family. So the spoils of war would be food and goods and animals, and in this case, it's Lot and his family and all that he has, which was a lot. No pun on words, but Lot had a lot. You know, remember? He had so much that he and Abram couldn't coexist together on the same land. So Abram suggested, so that we don't fuss and fight, let's part ways. And so that's what they did. Now, Lot had made his choice of direction and his choice of residency. And as we read the book of Genesis, it certainly appears that his motive had been selfish, that he looked, and even though Abram is the patriarch, Abram is the oldest, Abram is his uncle, and by every law of, of civilization, Abram had the right to say, I'll take this, you take what's left. Rather, he said to Lot, you take what you want and I'll take what's left. And so Lot took the more um, lush land and claimed that for himself. And now he pays a terrible price for what, he is, for what he's done. If the tradition of the day, pagan society, pagan world in which all of these people lived, if, if tradition of the day held true in one army conquering another or one people's conquering another, if that all holds true, then some of Lot's family would have been abused. They would have probably been raped and abused because that's just what happened. Uh, I think it would have been especially vicious because it was a rebellion. It wasn't that these kings came in to uh, conquer land that they didn't already control. They already controlled it. They got tribute from them. And so they had things the way they wanted it. And so when there was a rebellion, um, the four kings and their troops are pretty angry. Uh, I'm confident of that. So it would not have been a pretty picture. The spoils of war, the spoils of victory would have been awful for Lot and his family and for, for everyone else. 
Now, I want to remind you of the verse that's tucked away in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. Because if you, re- if you read Genesis and you don't ever read anything else about Lot ever again, if you're like me, your picture of Lot is not real favorable. Um, but you go to 2 Peter and you get, you, get a, you get the whole picture. Because Peter wrote about um, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he says about Abram rescuing Lot. If, he, if God, through Abram, rescued Lot. And then he says, a righteous man. He calls Lot a righteous man who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless. For that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Now we can debate about Lot moving into Sodom. I would have said to Lot, had he been my friend, it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea. But he did it, and he was tormented by what he saw, and we're going we're to see what he saw in, in just a little while. Not today, but just a little while as we move forward in Genesis. So Lot was distressed by what he saw and what happened to him in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities is horrific indeed. So the Bible doesn't tell us everything we might want to know, but it tells us enough to know that this was a very difficult time for Lot and his family. Um, The fact that they survived at all is the hand of God. Now, we come to verse 13, and I want to read to the end of the chapter, and then we're going to talk about what what happened. So we're leaving leaving Lot. We're leaving Lot. We're leaving Lot captured with his family, all his herds, all his wealth, all captured by the four kings. We come to verse 13, and it says, A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. You notice that? Abram the what? The Hebrew. Where does that word come from? Do you remember a few weeks ago? Eber. Yeah, Eber. Hebrew. Eber. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is far north corner of Israel current Israel. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. Now let your geography kick in. Where's Damascus today? Where was it then? Yeah, Syria. That's a pretty good little distance that Abraham was kicking their rear end, so to speak, and chasing them, and he meant business. These guys were, were ready. And they he had a brilliant plan. God was with him. He recovered all the goods 
and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. That's quite a stark contrast to Melchizedek and what he said to Abram. Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, the God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So we'll stop there. Uh, Abram, if you come back to verse 13, Abram is about 20 miles away from the end of the battle of the four kings conquering the five kings. He's about 20 miles away. Not very far, is he? But in those days, that's a long way. So an escapee stumbles into Abram's camp and tells the story about what had happened and what had happened particularly to Lot and his family. Now, Abram could have done nothing. Um, he could have said, well, my, my nephew, Lot, made his choice. Now he can live with it. And you know, most people knowing the story to this point would have said, yeah, I, Lot got what he deserved. Instead, Abram springs into action, and he does so immediately. 318 loyal men born in his household, meaning of his servants, and bravely they pursue the armies of the coalition that had been so totally victorious. Abram devises a plan of attack. And the result was that he routed them and chased them far away, as far as Damascus, rescued Lot and his family and his possessions. And I'm certain that Abram loved Lot. But Abram also knew that God had promised the land to him, not some coalition of pagan kings. So as Abram returns to his camp in triumph, two kings come out to meet him. The king of Sodom, recently defeated, and the king of Salem, who seemingly appears out of nowhere and whose name is Melchizedek. King of Jerusalem. Salem is Jerusalem, as it will be known. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Astonishing, because Melchizedek is a Canaanite who is a God worshiper. What happened? Wouldn't you like to know? What an amazing story. 
He's a Canaanite who worships the one true and living God. In spite of his upbringing, he believes in the one true living God just like Abram did. What did Abram worship? Remember? The moon. He used to be a moon worshiper. He's not only king, but he's priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek. So what did he do? He refreshed Abram, says with bread and wine, likely indicative of a full-scale banquet. It was probably more than a jug of wine and a loaf of bread. It was probably indicative of something even beyond that. And Melchizedek blessed Abram by the Most High God. So Melchizedek shows up and he brought his hands filled with gifts and his lips filled with praise. Meanwhile, and not surprisingly, the king of Sodom asked for people. Give me some people. Maybe he needed to repopulate his town. I, I don't know. Give me some people. Selfish gift for myself. And you keep the stuff, but give me people. And Abram responds to Melchizedek with the tithe, 10%. Uh, by the way, when people say the tithe is law, no, it's not. The tithe preceded the law. We don't have any law yet. The law comes when Moses shows up. This is predates the law. He gives 10% to the priest. To Sodom, Abram declined to deal. As the rescuer, Abram is entitled to everything. Sodom king, Sodom's king wants people kind of ungracious and self-serving. And Abram refuses it all except what his men have already eaten. And he just says, I'm not having any of it because I'm not going to live with people saying, you made me rich, king of Sodom. And so God alone is the one who makes me triumphant and wealthy. To God be the glory. Now... I pondered how much time to spend on Melchizedek, and we're going to move on. I want to refer you to Psalm 110, verse 4, and to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. And we just did Hebrews in this class not too long ago. At least it doesn't seem very long ago to me. So we dealt with Melchizedek then. So we're going to move on so we can finish Genesis before Jesus comes again. But I would encourage you to go on your own and read Hebrews, chapter 7 about Melchizedek, one of the most fascinating individuals in all of Scripture. Okay, so that's chapter 14. I have a new book for chapter 15, because that was too full. So, opening my new book, and we're at chapter 15, verses 1 through 6, Faith and Righteousness. We'll get started and see how far we go. Chapter 15 is an important chapter. Well, they all are, but this is a very pivotal chapter because we're going to deal with Abram and righteousness, faith and righteousness, okay? So before I read verses one through six, the link between faith and righteousness predates the New Testament. We know that. In fact, it predates Abram and the patriarchs. Faith and righteousness are found in at least three individuals that we've already spent some time with. Let me suggest them to you. Number one, Abel. Remember Abel? Go to Hebrews chapter 11, the Faith Hall of Fame, verse 4. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. 
by faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. So first linkage, faith and righteousness, Abel. Second, Enoch. Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more because God took him away. What a way to go. You know? When it says Enoch walked faithfully with God, that word walk means close communion and intimacy. A righteous life. Live by Enoch. Now, if you've still got your finger in Hebrews chapter 11, here's what the Faith Hall of Fame says about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Enoch. There's one more book in the Bible that speaks of Enoch. Who knows what that book is? A biblical, a biblical book that speaks of Enoch. It's a little bitty short book right near the end of the Bible. Jude. Jude. In Jude, verses 14 and 15... Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them, about wickedness in the end times. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him, that is, against God. So Enoch was a preacher for um, a little over 300 years. You thought I'd been here a long time. <laughs> the third character that we've already studied that connects faith and righteousness is, I know you know who it is. Who is it? I heard it. Noah. Yes, Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. The first biblical use of the Hebrew word righteous, Sadiq, is found in Genesis 6-9 as it refers to Noah. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Hebrews 11-7 By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Faith and righteousness. The connection already made with Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Now we come to chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. All I'm going to do is read the verses and give you the divisions. We'll come back and do the divisions next week. So, Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. So division number one, God speaks. God speaks. 
Verses 2 and 3. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Watch out, Abram. You're getting a little bit snippy there. Verses 2 and 3, Abram responds. God speaks, Abram responds. Does God get angry? No. Verses 4 and 5. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The man will, this man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offering be. So God gives assurance to Abram. Division three, God's assurance. And lastly, verse six is Abram's belief. Verse six, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, if you underline in your Bible, and I know most of you do, verse six needs to be one of your underlined verses. In the, in the Bible, verse 6 of chapter 15. Abram believed the Lord and he credited, credited it to him as righteousness. So next week, we'll look at the four divisions of verses 1 through 6. And then we're going to move on through the rest of the chapter. And we'll come to chapter 16 and uh, be introduced to Hagar and Ishmael. Oh my. <laughs> we're getting into some big stuff here, aren't we? Hagar and Ishmael. All right. Father, thank you. Bless us as we go from this place that we might honor and glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great afternoon.